Hey, if you uh, have a Bible, love it if you would open it up to the book of John chapter 1, and you say, John, I thought we were in Acts, and we were in Acts, and we're taking a pause. We're pausing our series in the book of Acts today, because today and this month of December, today marks the beginning of Advent. Uh, Advent is a time when we look forward to the coming of Christ, and literally the word Advent comes from a word that means the coming, and so Christ is coming, and, and as we look at the Christmas season approaching, we want to pause, and we want to pause from our series on Acts, and as a church, we want to pause, and we want to consider what this means to say that Christ is coming, and Christ has come, and what both of those things together mean. And so over the month of December, we're going to look at this passage in the Gospel of John and see what it has to say to us about Christ and his coming into this world. And help us kind of refocus because as, as holidays go on and as, as the holidays roll on and, and Thanksgiving is over and Christmas is coming and all of that rush and all of the demands and all of the logistical things you're thinking about and the stress and the family and all that stuff, we want to take this time and this opportunity to pause and to focus on what Christmas is about. And what Christmas is about is that Christ came into the world. And so we want to look at that together. So if you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one under the seat in front of you. And I'd highly encourage you to pick that up and look at that because we're going to look at this passage today. And then over the next five weeks, four or five weeks, we're going to be looking at this passage and see what it says about Jesus Christ coming into the world. So if you're in that book, Bible, uh, we're on page 886, John chapter one, and we're going to read the first 18 verses. We're not going to study all 18 verses this morning. We're just going to look at a few, but I want to start by reading this whole passage, this sort of introduction to the gospel of John. John chapter one, starting in verse one, if you would read with me. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, 
who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of the Lord. So here's what I want to do. We're, we're talking about Advent, and this is the coming of Christ, and we're looking forward now to the holidays, and we're looking forward specifically to Christmas, but I want to kind of fast forward right now, okay? I, I want to speed us all ahead for a second, and you're like, but it all goes so fast anyway, but just for a second, let's think about December 26th, okay? Because you know what happens on December 26th, right? It's all over, and, and to be honest, it's a bit oftentimes of kind of a letdown, isn't it? December 26th, you have to start thinking about taking down the decorations. You have to start thinking about returning the stuff you didn't want. You have to start thinking about um, trying to get back to normal life. And all of the excitement and the anticipation of everything that comes into Christmas, and it's over. Now, look, I'm talking to adults this morning. And so when I talk to you guys about December 26th, we're all, I don't want to say all. Okay, because some of us still have that sort of childlike innocence and that joy, and, and that's a good thing. But most of us, to be honest, most of us have gotten to a place where, like, looking forward to Christmas isn't quite what it used to be. You remember, so I'm going to take you back. You remember when you were a kid how exciting it was to look forward to Christmas? You remember your anticipation for that? You remember how excited you got? Christmas was coming and it was going to be like the greatest day of your life. And you were so pumped up about that. You remember that, right? And then, and then here's the sad, sad thing. I'm totally being a, a total downer. So this is how we're going to start the holiday season by me being totally depressing about it. But you got so excited about it and it rarely, rarely ever lived up to your expectations, did it? Like you were so sure when Christmas came, it was going to be so awesome. And there was always some kind of, and maybe when you, cause you're a kid, it's about presents in a lot of ways. And then you didn't get the present you wanted, or maybe you were hoping, hoping something was going to change and it didn't quite change. And so Christmas came and it went and you just kind of looked and you're just like, that was it. It's over. And the older we get and the more cynical we get about that. And the more we kind of start to think like, why do we, why even get excited? about holidays. But here's the, the funny thing, whether you get excited about Christmas or not, there are things that we all look forward to and things that we, we like pin expectations on and we look forward so much to some of these things. And honestly, honestly, most of the time, these things that we look forward to and we have so much anticipation and so much excitement about, and then they come and they go. And a lot of times we're kind of like, that was it. And so I'll take you back. You remember when you were in high school? You remember in high school how much you were looking forward to college? And oh my gosh, when I get to college, it's going to be so awesome. It's going to be so different and I'm going to be totally free and I'm going to be an adult and everything's going to change. And then you got there and you were like, this is it? Really? Like this isn't better? And so then here's what you did. You kind of shifted and you're like, okay, but once I'm done with this, I mean, once I'm done with school, right? And once I graduate and I get out and I start my career and you started looking forward to, and you had this anticipation when my career starts, when I'm no longer taking classes and I don't have to study anymore and I'm not being held to that rigid schedule and I'm just on my own. And then your career started and you were like, this is it? Really? 
And so then you, you shifted to something else and we're always looking forward to something, right? And it's like, maybe for you, it was marriage. And you were like, when I get married and everything's going to be so much better, or when I have kids, everything's going to be so much different and so much better. Or when this happens or when this happens and whatever it is, and we keep pinning our hopes on something and then it comes and it goes and we're always looking for something else. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why? And again, I'm not trying to be like depressing. I'm really not. But I think all of us have this understanding. This is a pretty common experience that we look forward to things and we pin our hopes on things and we tell ourselves when this happens, when this comes, once I've reached this point, things are going to get better. And we're constantly looking at where we are and we're saying there's got to be something more. There's got to be something else. We're always looking for something better, something greater. Some of us, some of us in, in that search for something more, something better, something greater, we've turned to religion before. And we've thought maybe that, maybe that, some sort of religious experience would bring me something greater or something better. And so we've tried some kind of a religious thing and it failed as well and left us looking for something more. And why is that? Well, I believe that there's something universal inside all of us that cries out for something more, something greater. And I believe that scripture bears out that that's actually something that comes from God, that he's put in us a desire and an understanding that there is something more and something greater than just this life. And so when you look at your life and you say to yourself that there's got to be more to life than just this, just what I am and just what I have right now, when you say there's something more, scripture would tell us that that's actually, that's true. And that's something that comes from God. He's put that inside of all of us, a sense and an understanding that there's more to life than just this life. But the problem is, we don't know how to find it or how to connect to it. And so we're constantly in our lives, constantly looking for something more, looking for something greater. We know there's something we know there's something more, but how do we find it? What is it? And how can we be a part of something bigger than us? The ancient Greeks saw this as well. And the ancient Greeks um, kind of hypothesized that there was this, this force, this something bigger. And specifically, um, the ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus, I hope I said that right. Um, and if there's a, like a philosophy student in here and I totally butchered that name, just forgive me, okay? If not, I said it right, okay? It's Heraclitus. He, he postulated that there was a force and he called it the logos that was the organizing force of the universe. It was something that was greater than any human being. It was this big impersonal thing that organized and controlled and ordered all of the world. The word logos that he used is translated by most um, Greek translators as the word. And this idea of the word 
the organizing force that controlled the entire universe was something that the Greek philosophers looked at as this is the something greater. And so we're humans. And then there's this inhuman force who's bigger and broader and grander than us, the logos, from which we get the English word logic. And so it's a very orderly and systematic way that the universe, because when we look at the universe, what we see most of the time is chaos. And we see a mess and we see disorder, but somehow it's working and somehow it's holding together. And as messy as it looks to us and as messy as humans are and as unable as we seem to be to comprehend how the whole world is working, then then Heraclitus said, well, there must be something other than us who's holding everything together, who's ordering everything. And so he called it the logos. And this idea of the word was something that the Greeks thought this is who or what is organizing or controlling the entire universe. And in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 1, John, who was one of the apostles of Jesus, who followed Jesus around day by day for three years, lived with Jesus, followed him in his earthly ministry, heard all of his teaching, watched everything he did. John writes a a, a biography of Jesus' life. And he starts it out, And he says, in the beginning was the word. And what's translated in your Bible as the word is this Greek word, logos. And what John was saying as he started out his gospel was that Heraclitus was right in one sense. The logos does exist, he says. In fact, it's existed ever since the beginning of time. And it is this great, amazing, organizing, and and in some ways very logical force. He says, you're right. The word does exist. But then he takes it a step further. And he says, the word was with God. And so here John draws a line and he draws a connection and he says, you're right. There is this greater, bigger thing, bigger than all of us. And it's existed since the beginning of time. And here's what you need to know. Ever since then, and he draws in the idea of God, the Jewish God. And so here's the Greeks who did not believe in the Jewish God. And the Jews who would oftentimes be at odds with the Greek philosophers. And he draws them together and he says, look, you're both right in this sense. There is this logos. And he was there and he was there with God, with my God. And then he takes it a step further and he says, and the word was God. So you're right. There is an organizing force to the entire universe. There is something bigger than you and bigger than me. And what that thing is, that organizing force, it's God. And it's not just God, but it was with God. And so this starts to get a little bit confusing because he's saying that there's God and there's someone with God who is God. And how can there be both? And later on in the passage... What we find out when he says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that what he's talking about is Jesus Christ. And so in this first opening part of the gospel of John, John uses the language of the Greek philosophers and this phrase and this, this, this word, they would have understood the logos to refer to Jesus Christ. And he says very clearly and very blatantly in the very first uh, 
verse that Jesus Christ is that thing you've been looking for. That something greater. That something that's out there. That something that you're always hoping to find. That something that you want to live for because you want to live inside of you. There's a desire to live for something greater than yourself. And that something greater than yourself that you so long for is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is God. And so when John wrote his gospel here, people would have been familiar somewhat with Jesus. He was pretty famous during his lifetime. But it would still have been controversial for him to state categorically that Jesus was God. When we talk about Christmas, here's what I want us to catch this morning. When we talk about Christmas, we talk about God put on flesh, put on human form, and came to earth as Jesus Christ and lived among us. God among us as a human. And that's an awesome and amazing thing. And as we spin this out over the course of the Advent season, we're going to talk about what that means for God to have become a human. But this morning, This morning, what I want to pause and look at is the first half of that equation. The fact that that human was God. God. Jesus Christ is, was, and will be God. And what does that mean exactly? We look in our lives and we say, We look for something more. We look for something greater. And John is telling us here that that something greater is here. It has come. It is Jesus Christ and he is God. So I'm going to look at the first five verses here this morning of John chapter one and pull out four statements about who Jesus is. Because he is God, four things about Jesus that are true. Because of his deity, because Jesus is both fully God and fully human. Today, I want to look at the fully God side of that and say, what does that mean? And what does that mean for us? And how does that shape our understanding? And not just our understanding, but our affection for God and for Jesus Christ. And because they are the same person, how does that and who he is and who God is and who Jesus is, how does all of that work together to stir in our hearts a greater affection and a greater desire and a greater longing for him and to be a part of that something greater? So let's look at this. Four things that this passage tells us about God. Number one, in the beginning was the word. And again, the word is Jesus Christ. So in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. That word eternal means very simply always having existed, never beginning and never ending. And so let's not confuse this with what the Greeks would have been familiar with, the idea of immortality, which means someone who never will die. And the Greek idea of God's And their pantheon of gods and goddesses, the gods were immortal. They could not die. But there's a difference. and, And John here is drawing kind of a fine distinction between being immortal and being eternal. 
Because all of the Greek gods came into being at some point. And so they all have different myths about how the gods came into being, how they began to exist. But what John says here about Jesus Christ is he always has been. In the beginning, from the very beginning of time, there has always been Jesus Christ. He never came into existence. He always was. This echoes uh, a passage from the Psalms. And so if you don't mind flipping over real quickly to Psalm chapter 90. Um, If you've got one of our hardback Bibles, that's on page 496. And I just want to read a couple of things. This was a Psalm written by Moses in praise to God. And in reference to God, he talked about God's eternality. And he said this, Lord, Psalm 90, verse number one, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting. And that sounds a little bit like he's repeating himself, but he actually is making a point here. From everlasting to everlasting means this. There's a Hebrew word there, that's being translated everlasting is the Hebrew word olam. Olam is the idea of eternity. It's forever, and it's not forever going forward. So most of us in our conception of eternity, we think about the future going on forever. But this word olam has the idea not just of the future going forward, but also going backwards. A better or another translation for olam for everlasting is the vanishing point. You know what the vanishing point is? The vanishing point is when you look forward, like like you're driving down a highway. When you're driving down a highway and you look forward as far as you can see down the highway, maybe a really flat stretch of land, okay? And you look forward as far as you can see down the highway and the road converges and it goes to a point and you can see a point and there's an end to what you can see, right? When you're driving down the highway, there's an end to how far ahead you can see. You don't, when you're driving and you look forward and you see that point on the horizon, you don't slam on the brakes and start screaming, the world ends. Because you know that beyond the vanishing point that the world continues, there's more highway, you just can't see it, right? But the vanishing point is as far forward as you can see. And the word Allah means... The vanishing point, as far forward as we can see, God goes further. And, and he says from everlasting to everlasting, meaning from the vanishing point backwards, if you look back behind you, as far back as you can see, as far back as we can record history, as far back as we can know, that even beyond that, God continues back beyond that as well. That God goes on forever in the past and forever in the future. He never didn't exist and he never won't exist. He always is. He always was and he always will be. Now that's practically impossible for humans to wrap their minds around. I can't. I can't understand that. I can't comprehend that. Because to me, for something to exist, it must have had a beginning. Nothing is unless it was started somehow. 
And yet what the scripture tells me about God is that God always has been. And that Jesus Christ is God, and so Jesus Christ always has been. And I just have to look at that and say, I don't even understand that. And I'm not going to try this morning to use some kind of, you know, linguistic gymnastics to try to make that make sense. I'm just going to say that's beyond my comprehension. And I think that's an important thing for all of us to say about Jesus Christ is that there are things about God and there are things about Jesus that are beyond our comprehension. That there are things that we can look as far as we can possibly see and we can understand as much as we can possibly understand. And he is greater and beyond even that. And so I can take my understanding to the very limits of what I can consciously know. And there's more to God beyond even that. Jesus is eternal. He always has been and he always will be. He has no beginning. He will have no end. He goes from everlasting from the vanishing point to everlasting to the vanishing point. He always will be. Related to that and connected to that, because he always has been, that only works and that only makes sense if this second thing is true. So see what he says. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made That was made. Jesus is the creator. He has to have been the creator to have existed eternally. Because otherwise, now follow with me on this. If he were not the creator, then he would have to be created. And if he were created, then at some point he came into being. And if Jesus came into being at some point, then he has not existed for all eternity, right? I mean, that's just a a straight up statement of, you know, kind of redundancy. He always has been. He was not created. Now, this is important to bring out because this is a point of, of contention among a lot of people. And a lot of religions teach that Jesus is great and he's the greatest among created beings. And he's the greatest human or the greatest prophet or the greatest something that ever was made by God. But what John's saying here is that that's not how this works. Jesus wasn't created. He is the creator. He is equal with God in creation. Jesus is above and beyond the creation. He is the creator And because of that, because Jesus is the creator of all things, that gives him authority equal with God's authority over all creation. Because he's the one who made all of this, he's the one who has control over all of this. So whatever he says goes, because he's the creator. And in my life, whatever he says is, is the way it goes because he's my creator. 
And so we look, and, and here's the danger I'm trying to keep away from. We look at Jesus and we say, God became a man. And he became flesh and he wants to have a relationship with us. And that's an awesome truth. And we're going to get into that more as the month goes on that he put on flesh and he came here to have a relationship with us. But we cannot lose sight. We cannot lose sight of the fact that while he was human, he was also still God and still has complete authority and still is deserving of our worship and our awe and our respect. Because he's the creator of all. And not only did he make everything, not only is he the creator of everything, he also sustains everything. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus didn't just make the world, and God didn't just make the world, set it spinning, and then step back. Jesus is the one who provides life to everything. He breathed life into humans from the very beginning, and he sustains life now. And the scriptures tell us that through him, everything continues to exist. That Jesus is the one who is making our world function even now. So not only did he create the world, he's not some kind of a a blind watchmaker who set it all in motion and then let it go, but rather he's intimately involved in everything that happens in the world now. And without him, without him, we would cease to be. We are totally and completely dependent upon Jesus Christ for every breath we breathe. Without him, we would have no life whatsoever. Jesus is eternal. He has always existed. He is the creator. He made everything. And so he has authority over everything. He is life. And so we are totally and completely dependent upon him. And then it says, the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus is eternal. He's the creator. He is the source of life and he is our light. Now, what does that mean? And this is, and as we read through this passage Uh, These first 18 verses, we see this phrase of the light coming up over and over and over again. So what does it mean? What does it mean to say that Jesus is the light? I think the best way to explain it is to contrast it. To put the contrast between light and darkness. Because where we are, who we are, and where we live and how we live, we live in darkness. We have a darkness in our minds and in our hearts that disables us from seeing that something that's greater. We all know there's something out there. We all know there's more to life than just us. But we can't quite see what it is. We can't quite get the picture of the something more. And so we're desperately groping around in the darkness and reaching out for something more, but we keep reaching for the wrong thing because of the darkness around us. 
and the darkness inside of us. And so there's two kinds of darkness in our world. There's the darkness that surrounds us. There's evil in the world. I mean, would you agree with that? There is just, there are evil people and there is evil that exists. There is injustice in the world. There is abuse. There's poverty. There's pain. There's death. There's immorality that hurts, that destroys, that kills. That's the darkness that surrounds us. But sometimes, sometimes I think even greater than that is the darkness that's inside of us. I have a brokenness and an inability on my own to see what's right. And I try on my own to do the right thing, but I constantly find myself running into unknowns and finding places where I don't know which way to turn. And when I'm left to my own devices, when I'm left to myself, I make the wrong choice over and over and over again. And I phrase it like it's a mistake. Most of the time it's willfully because I want what I think will make me happy and I'm usually wrong because I have inside of me a darkness that disables me from knowing right from wrong. Prophet Jeremiah put it this way. He said, our hearts are deceitful. What's inside of me, my heart, steers me in the wrong direction. I'm so blinded by what I think is right, but I'm unable to see it. I desperately need something, something that will show me what's true. Show me what's right. Show me what's good and show me what that greater thing is. And John says here, that's Jesus. Jesus is the light. And he came to this earth so that he could be a light in our darkness. And he shone in like like a flashlight shining into a darkened cave. And he came in and he totally illuminated the darkness. But like a person who's in that cave in the darkness, when a light shines in, what the world did when the light shined in was it slammed its eyes shut because the light was too bright. Look at what he says, verse number five. Jesus is the light that shines into the darkness. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, again, and I apologize for all the Greek and Hebrew and stuff this morning, but the word overcome there is kind of a cool word that John's using here in the original language because it has a double meaning. The word is katalambano. And katalambano has kind of a range of meaning. And so different, different translations of the Bible translate it different ways. And they're all actually pretty good translations because there's multiple meanings for this word. So overcome is a good translation. Because Jesus shines this light into the darkness. And in so many ways, the darkness that is around us wants to push the light out. Because dark and light cannot exist at the same time in the same place. 
Light drives out darkness. So darkness, the darkness here, wants to drive out the light. And the darkness, the evil, the sin in the world would rather not have Jesus shining his light on our darkness. And it would attempt and it would try to push him back and push him out. And that's what happened to Jesus when he came into the world, that the forces of darkness in the world tried to do everything they could to push him out and get him away, discredit him, ultimately murder him. And yet the darkness could not overcome the light. Everything they did to try to silence Jesus and his followers just made him stronger. His light shine brighter. And they murdered him and he arose from the dead. And his light became brighter in the world. And nothing the darkness could do could squelch his light. So overcome is a good translation of the word. But there's another translation. And that's the idea of to grasp or to comprehend the light. And both are meanings of this word. And so both are true. But it was, So it would be equally valid to say that the darkness has not comprehended the light. Jesus came to this earth and he shined the light of the gospel. The good news that God through his grace and by his love has sent himself to rescue sinners from their punishment. And he came into the world with this great light, this great truth. And the darkness didn't understand couldn't comprehend, could not possibly wrap their minds around this truth. And so the light's shining in the darkness, and we in our darkness can't fully comprehend it. And so what we see as we study scriptures, and as you go through the book of John and into Acts and through the rest of the New Testament, is because we were unable to comprehend the light, God had to illuminate our minds for us. On our own, in our darkness and in our sin, we are incapable of even comprehending the light that Jesus shines. Skip ahead to verse 12. When he says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who understood or believed or trusted in the light that he was shining in, he gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born, and here it is, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you know what that means? It means that none of us, as humans on our own, are capable by force of our own will, by our own choices, by trying really hard, none of us are capable of becoming children of God. None of us are capable of grasping a hold of that something greater. The light 
shines in the darkness, but us in our darkness, we are unable to comprehend it. Only through an act of God himself can any of us see the light. So Jesus is eternal. He always has been and he always will be. He's the creator. He made all of this and has absolute authority over all of it. He is the source of our life. He sustains us. He keeps us going. And he is the light that shines into the darkness of our world and the darkness of our souls. So what does all of this mean? What impact does all of this have on us? Let me just summarize three simple Statements to just summarize. Number one, we all know that there is something greater. All of us inside of us have a longing, a desire for something more than us, something bigger than us. We all know there's something greater. But number two, we cannot on our own grasp that greatness. In all of our trying, all of our reaching, all of our attempts are futile on our own to grasp a hold of that something that is greater. So number three, because those two things are true, because we know there's something greater, but we can't grasp the greatness on our own. Because those two things are true, the greatness had to come. To us. We could not go to God. So God had to come to us. In the greatest act of love, in the greatest act of grace, in the greatest act of mercy the world has ever known, the most miraculous event in the history of civilization, the greatness came down to us. And now the light is here. The eternal light, the light that has shone from before time began and will continue to shine until after the end of the world, that light is here with us now. And it is available to those who believe who believe that Jesus Christ really is God and that he really did come to earth to take our punishment for our sin because of our inability to go to him. He came for us. And when we believe that he did that and that he died to take the punishment that we deserve, then we can go and be a part of that something greater. This is what Advent is about. This is what the coming is. This is the light coming into the world. This is what Christmas means. And this is what my prayer over the course of this Advent season and the the course of the holiday season and, and in the course of Christmas, that we would remember that what happened 
was that the creator, the eternal one, the source of life, the light of the world came to us because we could not go to him. And I hope that that fills us with a sense of awe and a sense of wonder at who Christ is. So we're going to do something a little bit different this morning to wrap this up. Instead of having reflection questions on the screen, what I want to do together is I just want to read this passage again. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And so, if you would, and I know it's, it's kind of a long passage, but I would love for you to read this with me. So if you would, if you have a Bible, make sure you're there, John chapter 1. If you need to pull it up on your phone or whatever, go ahead and do that. And then, if you would, stand up. And together, I want us to read again verses 1 through 18. And I want you to pay close attention to the references both to Jesus as the Word. He's the Logos. He's the organizing force. He's the something greater than us. And to the references of him as the light. Because he came to shine into the darkness. So would you read this out loud with me? And then we'll pray and we'll go into a time of communion. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You can be seated. Heavenly Father, God, you are great. And what more can we say except that you, God, are holy.
You are above us. You are greater than us. You are more than us. And deep within us, we long to be a part of you. And we never could, and yet you, in your infinite love, came to us. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you for coming as Jesus Christ. Thank you for coming to this earth as a human to live the life we could not live, to die the death we should have died. Thank you. Heavenly Father, please fill us again today, throughout this month, and on into the future with an awe and a wonder for who you are and for what you have done. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.